Hey everybody, Louis here. Thank you so much for your patience over the last couple of weeks. Life happens, but we're back. We're back with our episode about the 1999 comedy Office Space. I'm really excited for you to hear it. If you like what you hear, feel free to give us a like, a rating, or a follow, or a review, whatever you fancy on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. We hope you enjoy the episode. If you like what you hear as well, we've got another 26 other episodes about all kinds of things. You're more than welcome to give those a go. Thank you so much. I'm going to shut up now and let you enjoy today's episode. If I was to come up with like the stupidest name for a podcast ever, right? Mm-hmm. No, bear with me, bear with me. So as what we're doing is about film directed and written by Mike Judge. Sure. Who has written many wonderful things. I was thinking if you did a Mike Judge themed podcast, it would called Judge Not Lest Ye Be Judge. And that's a stupid name for a podcast. God, I hate puns, but I love puns. <laughs> oh, I'm so angry. <laughs> but also enraptured. <laughs> did you find that incredibly frustrating to hear? Yes, I did. It's one of those things where if this is a video medium, I feel like my true disdain the nuance of my disdain for you would come across much better. The nuance of my disdain. That's, That's another the name, name of my new email band. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of disdain and frustration, today's com- today's podcast is all about the film Office Space. A film, funnily enough, that deals with a lot of frustrain, frustration and disdain. That's a beautiful segue, well done. <laughs> it would be beautiful, but I tripped over my words. <laughs> Alright, so Office Space, if you're wondering, if, you're, if you've come to this because you're just a big fan of us, Office Space is a comedy that was released in 1999, written and directed by Mike Judge. Now, if you're thinking, who's Mike Judge? You've already gone on about him quite a lot. Have you seen Beavis and Butthead? If the answer is yes, congratulations, you're familiar with Mike Judge. Other works include King of the Hill, Silicon Valley, the film Idiocracy... So they're sort of the major things. Mm. They're the major... Like, Mike Judge is a bit of a cult. He's a bit of a cult in and of himself. Yeah. Like, when, like Mike Judge doesn't exactly just churn things out. So whenever he does do a thing, there's always an element of, ooh, what Mike, what's Mike Judge doing? Ooh, Mike Judge is doing a thing. Ooh, how exciting. Okay. Yeah. That's like, kind of my impression of what people think of Kevin Smith, even though I've never seen a Kevin Smith film. Yeah. But it feels similar. Mm. Broadly similar. All right. So, Office Space. Now, Office Space is a comedy set in The Office. It's about workplace frustration. It's a classic sitcom setup. (laughs) Well, speaking of classic sitcom setups, originally... Now, Office Space, it's sort of... It's based... When he was younger, he did a bit of work at a defence contractor's. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. But before that, he actually had worked in, like, a typical sort of office. Hmm. He lasted three weeks. He was not a fan of that environment. And a lot of the basis and for the characters in Office Space do come from his real life. Like, for example, the character of Milton is based off a person he worked with at a defence contractor's. Like, that's wild as a concept, yeah. that, that Milton is based on a real person. So it's Lawrence, the neighbor, the, um, uh, Ron Lewis's neighbour. Uh, that I find more believable, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but Milton feels like such a cartoon, you know? We'll get to Milton. We'll, we'll discuss yes, of course, the character yeah. Because um, Milton is the original sort of genesis for the concept of Office Space. In 1991, Mike Judge created an animation because he really wanted to pursue his dreams of animating. He was mm. sick of the sort of 9 to 5 life. So he creates this animation called Milton's Office Space. 
And Milton's office space is just the character of Milton sitting in an office and he's getting incredibly frustrated because he's had his things moved, his desk's been moved multiple times. And then his particularly annoying boss, Mr. Lumberg, comes through the door. All the characters, of course, are voiced by my judge. It's a very short animation. There was, there was about four of them. Actually finding these was unbelievably difficult. I spent more time trying to find these animations than I did almost any other research. Oh, wow, okay. Because it was a nonsensical. Like, I was only able to find one, but I know there are four. Yeah. What did you think of it? Because I, I um, deliberately sent it to you. I mean, it's it's interesting contextually, find, yeah. having seen the movie first and kind of vaguely knowing that there was something it was based on. Hmm. It would be interesting to see all four. Yeah. And see how that feeds into the plot of Office Space. Yeah. So... At some point, at uh, one particular edition of the Aspen Comedy Festival, a gentleman, um, quite a few of these are shown, and a gentleman called Peter Chernin, who was the head of Fox Television at the time, he sees this at this festival and gets in touch with Mike Judge. Now, because Beavis and Butterhead had become quite a hit... Okay, so it had taken off at that point, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, this... Milton's office space was from 1991. Beavis and Butterhead came after that. Beavis and Butterhead was basically wrapping up at the time. And Peter Chernin sees this. He says this should be a movie. People do want to work with Mike Judge because Beavis and Butterhead was such a hit. Yeah. So I'm not saying he had carte blanche. He could have like named his price. But there would be interest. If there's any sort of project that he that people thought could be a thing, Yeah. there would be interest from a studio. So he starts working on the script for a feature about office space. Now, while he's doing that, he is working on the pilot for King of the Hill. Nice. <laughs> And he's also doing Beavis and Bahia to America. So that short period of his life is incredibly busy. And in around September of 1997, by the way, I'm just giving you like a Cliff Notes version of the process because I don't want to spend hours going into things like how development deals work, etc. In about September of 1987, Mike Judge takes a group of actors, including David Herman, who would go on to play Michael Bolton in the feature film, and Stephen Root. Classic Stephen Root. Stephen Root, Michael and David Herman into a table read. Mm. so they do the table read Mike Judge is a bit worried it hasn't gone very well but a Tom Rothman who is one of the executives said this the film is there there's a basis for a film but obviously things do need to be changed like certain executive and producer types all seem to think of a more straight ahead like knockabout comedy okay you know they all sort of pitch in as like oh what about like, you know, like a workplace comedy where everyone's you know like oh Works. Everyone's getting angry. And everyone's shouting. And a bit zany, it sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's. We'll get into the difficulties of trying to market what this film actually is later, because there are difficulties when you try and market a film like this. Yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Originally, um, during the table read, Milton was going to be read by Mike Judge, but then he started to get a bit nervous before doing it, so he decided to ask Stephen Root to do it instead. A decision that frankly is a beautiful 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 coincidence yeah the weird lisp that milton speaks with in the film is entirely stephen root's idea oh, okay i really like stephen root i think he's like one of the great character actors stephen of root our is time a gift. he is if you don't know who stephen root is um if you've seen brooklyn 99 he's charles Boyle's dad yeah that's probably the most culturally mainstream thing at the moment yeah but stephen root is an actor that even if you think you haven't seen him he's in everything yeah you have yeah. Like you have seen this dude. He's like, great. if you've watched King of the Hill, he plays Bill in King of the Hill. Like, come on. 
Like, so after this table read, they start trying to punch it up and cast it. And obviously, at this time, studios want stars. Yeah. <laughs> if I was to tell you that, stu- that um, Fox were trying to get Ben Affleck and Matt Damon to play what? the <laughs> that, lead role. That's like... I. I, I can see why at that time they were like, who who are the big names? Well, yeah, Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, but for this... Because you're, obviously you're going off age, your age profile of the character. It's weird, though. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. it. It's so the character totally Pete, wrong. So the lead character in this film is a character called Peter Gibbons, mm. and that's the role that studio executives were trying to pitch Matt Damon to Ben Affleck's for. Uh, they both did take meetings with Mike Judge. Matt Damon apparently wanted to do it, but money... Yeah. Ben Affleck, again, wanted to do it, but, well, he said, they, they say that he wanted to do it, but he was asking for, like, millions. Yeah. And this film was not a film that was going to be getting no. 50, 60 million. This film was produced for $10 million. Oh, wow, that's really cheap, movie-wise, I know, yeah. like, obviously money, but still. Uh, that's a low budget, like. <laughs> so, lots of people audition, and what Mike Judge had actually said about the Peter Gibbons part is... Most actors played it like, this place is bullshit and I deserve better and I'm going to get out of here and it's all, you know, angry, angry. Mm -hmm. To me, the actually was, I'm actually lucky to have this job. It makes the fact that I don't like it more depressing because I didn't think I deserved better. Oh, well, that hurts. (laughs) Yeah. The script gets into the hands of the agent of the actor, Ron Livingston. Now, Ron Livingston, you might be thinking, who the fuck is Ron Livingston? Hey, if you've seen Band of Brothers, he's in that. And I know a lot of you have seen Band of Brothers. I have not seen Band of Brothers. That's insane. Everyone's seen Band of Brothers. Is it a movie or a TV show? It's a TV show. Okay. It's amazing. Well, I haven't seen it. Add it to the list of things I haven't seen. (sighs) All right. (laughs) All right. Okay. The podcast stops immediately to make Kate watch all of Band of Brothers. (laughs) So Ron Livingston puts in this audition and the casting director immediately sends this to Mike Judge and goes, like, we found him. This like you, this guy gets it. This mm. guy is getting what you've been trying to do. Mike Judge is very, very adamantly wants Ron Livingston for seeing this audition. The studio is trying to sort of hold out on him. The studio did this with a couple of characters. They did this with the Milton as well. They basically because they were so obsessed with the whole we have to have a name. We've got to have stars. Yeah. We've got to have like you can't just have any old so you can't just have the right person. Quote unquote. You've got to have like stars. Yeah. In order to get around that concept. The main female character, Joanna, Peter's love interest, is what was they managed to get Jennifer Aniston, who at the time was five years into Friends, a show you may or may not have heard oh, of. Oh, okay, so she was that far into Friends. And this yeah, it's 99, it's five okay. years. You're right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so at this time... Okay, she, so she's the star. <laughs> yeah, but casting her basically allowed them, or allowed my judge, sorry, the freedom to sort of, na- not pick, not just like pick anyone out of a hat, but it allowed them to, you know, have a non-mainstream star lead mm. and a non-mainstream sort of star supporting cast because objectively Jennifer Aniston is the biggest name in the film. Oh, definitely, yeah. And it's not a case of Jennifer Aniston's phoning it in either. No, no. No, she's excellent. She's very funny. Like in all yeah, she's hilarious, movies, I, I do think sometimes when I think of Jennifer Aniston, I don't necessarily kind of acknowledge how good a comedic actress she is, but yeah. like she is. Yeah, she's brilliant. When they were casting the role of uh, Bill Lumberg, the closest thing you could say to this film being an, having an outright villain. Yeah. Bill Lumberg. Now, a lot of you, even if you've never seen this film, you're actually probably already very familiar with Bill Lumberg because Bill Lumberg is one of internet culture's 
longest lasting most beloved memes yeah i i'd seen this meme for about a decade i think before i saw this movie and it was all i knew about the movie yeah so if you're wondering what what well what meme is that if you if you ever see an image macro of a person saying if you could do a thing that'd be great holding a mug and he's wearing like braces and you know and he's in a very gray office that's what i'm talking about you've almost certainly seen that meme at some point i've used it so many times i've forgotten how i've forgotten how many times i've used it's just it is almost ubiquitous yeah but that's part of this movie's cult appeal and bill lumberg now if this film was like a more mainstream type comedy bill lumberg wouldn't be as terrifying and awful as he is he'd be a lot more overtly like aggressive in how he talks to people Mm. he'd be much he'd be much more like jk simmons in spider-man yeah he would be a lot more almost like john c mcginley in scrubs yeah in a way he'd be a lot more like cutting verbally that's how they would write that's how the character would be rewritten but no bill lumberg is terrifyingly believable yeah he he is a terrifyingly believable person because if we've like, you've almost certainly met someone who is that weird mixture of passive aggressive incredibly frustrating to be around mm. like all the energy leaves the room when he walks in it he's he's very walking bureaucracy yeah you know like just layers of shice to get through yeah but yeah very but also boring yeah like, passive aggressively boring yeah. Um, but yeah, like not not like John C. McGinley in Scrubs, which yeah. is yeah overtly aggressive. Yeah, Bill Lumberg is played by Gary Cole, who is a wonderful actor. Mm. You, if you um, I also thought, in everything, he's in a lot. Yeah, he's one of those actors yeah. who just appears in things. Um, Gary Cole is. Well, I mean, the little things that he does, like for example, he accentuates the word "great" because he doesn't just say that would be great. That's not just like a catchphrase. Because again, if this was a more mainstream comedy, they would have sort of hammered on Mike Judge to make that'd be great, like the catchphrase. Yeah. And he would just say it like all every time he's on screen. And while he does that, he says it in a way that is so, so vile and so hilarious that it makes it makes your skin crawl. Yeah. Every time that there's a particular scene which we will come to that will make your skin crawl and remove itself from your body, curl up and die. It's so horrible. But it's so good. Bill Lumberg is just Oh, anyway, we'll shut up about that. We'll come to it. Other people who auditioned for Bill Lumberg include uh, John C. McGinley. Yeah, I can see that as well. Yeah, John C. McGinley is also in this film yeah. playing a management consultant. There's a pair of management consultants who appear in this film. They're both called Bob. They're known as the Bobs. One And John C. McGinley is one of them. We also have a character who is literally called Michael Bolton. <laughs> I do love that. That's, that's fun. <laughs> I just Michael Bolton himself is uh, actually taking this surprisingly well. <laughs> if uh, he he came around to it fairly quick at first, like because at one point the character refers to Michael Bolton the singer as a no talent ass clown. Yes, <laughs> and the word ass clown is actually I'm not saying it was originated in this film, but it is heavily popularized. Every time you've heard it since, you can pretty much trace it back to this movie. Other sort of big names that could have appeared in this film, um, the character of Lawrence, who is Peter's neighbour. Owen Wilson auditioned for this, <laughs> as did Vince Vaughn. Um, Diedrich Bader, the actor who eventually got the part, he actually was going to audition. He, the character he sort of worked on for the audition was basically Owen Wilson in the film Bottle Rocket. Amazing. He then sees Owen Wilson walk out of the audition room. <laughs> so he rejigs quite drastically the character into more like a 
big mulleted southern guy um yeah i want to have a br- brief moment to talk about like the production design of this movie mm-hmm. i was reading an oral history of this movie and one of the things that one of the producers said was that mike judge doesn't really like believe in the concept of production design what i mean by that is he doesn't like gussy up the sets to make them look a certain way okay he's much more about like for example when you actually see the office when you see the company the office that they work in so the building of the company Inatech that they work in when you see it it's not like hollywooded up it's not pretty it's so gray yeah everything about it, it like the walls they're gray like there is no like pops of color there is no sense of like the outside world it is just a rat run of gray Mm. and bland bland like washed out yeah even like the posters and you know the sort of corporate mantra type things and the whole like there's like a banner that hangs above the uh hangs from the ceiling saying like something along like what can you do for your company and it's not even like that's all like beautiful and colorful it's just gray with like a tiny bit of like turquoise for the word company everything about the office every time the production designers and set designers decide try to like add a bit of colour to it. My judge was like, no, get rid of it. Get rid of that bullshit. This is not what I'm trying to portray. That's yeah. not what the off- these sort of offices look like. Because this, again, this is based on real experiences. Mark Judge has actually worked in an office. That informs every frame of the movie. As in every frame that takes place in the office. Yeah. It even informs the other workplace that we encounter, which is Jennifer Aniston's character's workplace. Um, the chain restaurant that... It's TGI Fridays. Yeah. Like they wanted to use the they wanted to use TJ Fridays, but TJ Fridays like no fucking way. Um, the play, so instead of using like the same color scheme as TJ Fridays, they basically just changed the red to green. Yeah, that's literally all they did to differentiate it, and they called it Judge Keys. It's not a word. It's not a word. <laughs> it's not a word. Um, Mike Judge himself plays the manager of Judge Keys. Was that Mike Judge? Yeah. Oh, I didn't pick that up at the time. Yeah, that's Mike Judge. Um, they were trying to audition someone for that, but they never found the right person, so he just did it himself. They found the right guy to play, because um, there's another employee who works there. So you have Jennifer Aniston's character who works there, and you have another employee who works there that you see, who is, like, obnoxiously, like, perky. Yeah. They found him, and but they couldn't find, like, someone to play the manager, so Mike Judge played it. And to be fair, Mike Judge is hilarious in this. Yes. Like, he wears, like, this ridiculous sort of, like, hair, and he's got this stupid moustache, and <laughs> Church Keys is a ludicrous, ludicrous concept. But Joanna's character is also frustrated. Yeah. But we will get we will get into this in a second. We'll get into this. The film was mostly filmed in this sort of. Uh, I believe it was filmed in Austin, Texas. Okay. It was around there. So the actual general premise of Office Space, it follows the lives of Peter Gibbons, who is a programmer for the firm Inatech which is supposed to sort of like be a merger of like innovation and technology, if you're wondering what, what how they come with such a ridiculous name. Ooh, such synergy. Such Love synergy. It. So Michael and Samir are his two sort of friends that are also programmers, the sort of youngish programmers working there. Other employees that work there as well include Milton, Milton Wadhams, to give him his full name, who is, to say he is um, frustrated by his the continual moving of his desk and other such indignities is an understatement. Bill Lumberg is the executive vice president of Inatech. Now Peter lives next to his neighbor's um his neighbor is a construction worker called Lawrence who is a lot more content with his life. Mm. He's a lot happier. Peter is um incredibly miserable. 
We first, the film opens with a scene of Peter trying to commute to Inatech in his car. He's driving along and there's a shitload of traffic. And within about two minutes, you've immediately seen that Mike Judge is able to capture the frustrations of just the general concept of commuting. Yeah. Peter's trying to move into a different lane because he sees the traffic moving. So he's, I'm going to try and move into that into the traffic moves. Every time he moves, the traffic stops. And the lane he's just left, the traffic starts moving. And you see him get visibly more and more frustrated. But what he doesn't do is then start like like screaming, like punching his thing and start doing like a comedy angry reaction. It's more like the look on his face is just defeatism. Yeah, he, it's very. There's a lot of resignation, at, at, especially at the start of this yeah. film. Yeah. About like the situation at hand. Yeah. Not rage. Yeah. It, like I say, it's not. He's not punching the thing, going blah 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 blah. blah. He is just resigned. Hmm. He is frustrated. Like there's a scene where he visits a hypnotherapist. Not a hypnotherapist. He visits like a counselor who does a bit of hypnotizing on him. There's a scene where he does that, and he he says to the he says to the therapist, "Every single day since I started working is the worst day of my life." Mm. Now that is funny because that's that's dark, but at the same time, it's unbelievably depressing yeah i mean like i suppose it is funny but i would say it's more dark than anything else like it is sad i mean to it's, partly because the ther- it's partly because the therapist says like is today the worst day of your life and he just says yeah <laughs> there's i, I want to bring there's a particular character that i want to bring up she's got like two lines in the whole film but the two lines she has and they're roughly about two lines her name is nina she works in accounts payable and there's this weird sort of background noise that you hear for a couple of minutes. So Peter's walking, I think the first time you see Peter walk into work, you hear this lady say, corporate accounts payable, Nina, just a moment. But with this incredibly weird emphasis on certain words, it's all really chirpy and she just doesn't stop saying it. She's just practicing this and it's water torture. Again, that is just capturing the frustration. Mm. The ridiculous nonsense that is this situation. And it's every time, just hear her say it, just hear her say it in the background. It's not like it cuts to her saying it once and then it's like, ha ha, funny, move on. No, no, you keep hearing her say it just low enough so you know it's being said, but not low enough so you can tune it out. And it it's an incredibly effective way of putting in that fucking infuriating bullshit. And there's a point on this day where he goes to Samir and he goes to Michael and he says he wants to go and get coffee. They're going to go charge keys to get some coffee. And, like, they're frustrated. And then this other employee walks past and just says, uh-oh, looks like someone's got a bad case of the Mondays. And you can just feel, you can just feel the blood just, like, leaving the body. Like, what does that even mean? What? There's a few of the, <laughs> there's a few of these sort of, random bullshit phrases that come out from characters in this film like, bad case of the mondays like what does that mean it's it doesn't so- mean anything no because when they're in the when they're in tchotchke's having a coffee the incredibly like drew the uh, not drew brian the inc- brian the incredibly perky waiter who tries to like relate to them and what have you he even says it to them and they just sort of look at each and you just want to strangle this dude yeah, this he's dude, too perky. This guy is just... He's too upbeat yeah. about everything. He's too much flair. Too much flair. <laughs> he's, he's wearing more than the minimum required pieces of flair. We will talk about flair in a bit. 
because it's a fun little tidbit about Flair. I just want to touch on, I want to touch on the supporting cast a bit. I want to touch on particularly Michael Bolton and Samir Nainaninaja, which I believe I'm saying right. I hope I am. Hopefully. Because one of the main jokes is how people just can't say Samir's name. And I relate to that because yeah. people can't say my last name. That's true, yeah. Or people look at my, like my last name and go, Tang. They just kind of give up. <laughs> no, no, sorry, I can't say that. I can't say that. It's quite phonetic. So you can. You can. <laughs> like you can. There's no law saying you can't. So I really relate to Samir's yeah. plight on that front. But I also we I also relate to this weird thing about Michael. Uh, Michael's also a big fan of gangster rap. And the first time you see him, he's commuting and you see him like rapping along to this song. But then there's a black gentleman walking along the road, like trying to I think he's like trying to sell flowers, like to uh, people in cars, and he deliberately turns down the music because <laughs> he doesn't want to like give off the vibe that he's like a racist or something yeah and he obviously doesn't want to randomly shout the n-word i mean a good tip for everyone yeah my judge is a big hip-hop fan yeah like all the hip-hop in the movie that's that's him he pushed for that the studio did not want any sort of gangster rap in the movie they didn't mm. want any of that sort of music but that's all my judge pushing for it there's a lot of hip-hop in this movie there's a particularly incredible use of hip-hop later in this film we'll talk about it as an iconic scene michael and samir like Every time Michael Bolton's name is read out, a character assumes that he's related to Michael Bolton, the singer. Yeah. Like, every single person just assumes he's related to him. I relate to that because people assume somehow, and this is no joke, people assume that I am related or was named after the documentarian Louis Theroux. Why? (laughs) Because people are stupid. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Do you see why it's annoying? There are other famous Louis also. Yeah, but the only one they can think of... The only one they can think of is, you know, so what did you think of, you know, the him? So I don't know, I, I immediately think of um, French kings. <laughs> well, you immediately think of French kings. Yeah. Most people think of documentarian who, when I was born, had not done anything for the BBC. Yeah, I don't think he's old he had, enough to, when had, you were born, yeah. be like, you know, he hadn't famed. Even, he hadn't even worked for Michael Moore at this point. He hadn't even done that stuff yet. Louis Theroux was just a dude at that time. He was just yeah. going about his day. But people do ask me that. That's why I can't. I cannot tell you that's, enough. They I did really not know do. that until today. Like, I, I, yeah, I promise you. Oh, that's fun. So they're all they're all programmers. They're all programmers for Inatech. Um, uh, Peter explains his job to Joanna. In uh, he explains it as like he's set. He's putting. He's like going through lines of code because it's to prevent like because at the time there was a real. Sort Y2K of thing scary, that white yeah that when yeah. as soon as the year two thousand came like loads of companies would like like all their records would delete themselves because of how like uh, how how systems were run they were running like date, dates were done in two digits mm. so it would go ninety nine double zero basically just go back a hundred years obviously a lot of work was done to stop this yeah I, I won't go into that because I do not know anyone near enough about all the details of that there's some there is a really interesting um, podcast oh there is about yeah. Y2K um, from the same guy who made uh, Running From Cops uh, on so that that's, I can't remember the name of the Y2K podcast but it's really really good okay <laughs> just yeah if you are interested in Y2K yeah. a bit more there you go yeah while they're having coffee Brian the stupidly perky waiter there's a thing that he says to them. He asks them, can I get you guys something to nibble on? And one of the things he asks them if they can nibble on is he says, pizza shooters, shrimp poppers, or extreme fajitas. Now, the only one I understand. The reason, now, the reason I bring this up is because 
this is the kind of ridiculous nonsense that I, I, I fixate on. What the fuck is a pizza shooter? That's what I was going The only one I was What is that? I have no idea. Is this I assume a, it's I'm a guessing, tiny pizza. I presume this is something that Mike Judge has written in as like a satire of ridiculous nonsense that you would get like... And I get that. I respect it. But if I ever met Mike Judge... I get the feeling the first question I would ask him would not be, what was it like to write Office Space? Or what was it like to write Beavis and Butthead? Because he's been asked that. He's been asked that enough time. I'm coming for the real hard questions. What's extreme fajita? <laughs> what the fuck is an extreme fajita? But most importantly, what the fuck is a pizza shooter? It's not a drink, because the waiter says something to nibble on. So it's not like a... I, I think it's a tiny pizza. Like an hors d'oeuvre-sized... Pizza. How do you even make a tiny pizza that small with the toppings on it? How do you do that? Tiny knives. Cut it up real small. But how do you get, like... Ooh, make a bigger pizza, okay? And then get, like, you know those cutters you use for scones? Okay. Like a small one of those. And then just, ooh, cut in, lift it up. Yeah. There you go. Tiny bites. So that's your... Nibble, what you... nibble, nibble. So your idea of a pizza shooter is just a scone that looks like a pizza? No. The shape of... The shape of a scone, using the cutter for a scone, but it is still pizza dough with pizza toppings and stuff. Or you could just be really lazy about it and only use sauce and cheese because that's not yeah size dependent. I'm, yeah. I'm fairly confident that's what a pizza shooter is. Yeah. Or get the individual ingredients that would constitute a pizza and they're cooked and put them like in individual shot glasses and then shoot, 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 shoot. But you don't nibble Mouth on that. Pizza. But then you have to nibble on what's in your mouth. He deliberately nom, nom, says nom. something you nibble on. You cannot drink something you nibble on, woman. Well, you're just firing it into your mouth with the glass. You're not drinking it because it's not a liquid. You have to chew. Nom, nom, nom. This is an absurd hypothesis and I do not stand for it. <laughs> I've given you two options for what a pizza shooter is. I do not endorse either. <laughs> I would like to see you do better. How dare you not like my off-the-cuff reckonings? <laughs> Uh, I'm just playing. What do you think an extreme fajita is in the context of like the? Because like my idea of an extreme fajita, based on what I know of American culture, would just be a fajita that's so overstuffed that is also bigger than a fajita you would get in an actual Mexican restaurant or in actual Mexico. So my, while I agree with that premise, and or something with so much chili in it, it would burn. I would I would go with chili because if it's something to nibble on, to me that implies. Like more of an appetizerness yeah. to things, yeah. which would imply smallness. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, I think the extremity comes from the heat. Yeah. The heat. But in theory, if it was a main, then I would agree with you in that it's just a really giant. In the way when you watch like Triple D, it's like yeah. real big servings, yeah. you know. Yeah. And Guy Fieri's like mm, delicious. Yeah. Um, it's extreme fajita. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I again, I, I'm erring on the side of small because it's nibbles and you can't nibble on something giant. Or I suppose you can, but it seems redundant. Take big bites out of something <laughs> giant. Amazing. I have a lot, clearly I have a lot of thoughts on food that I, I, I didn't even know I had, but here we are. <laughs> I got, yeah. Shrimp poppers make a lot of sense. They're yeah, basically just popcorn chicken with shri- shrimp instead yeah. of chicken. Yeah. That's why that whole scene fascinates me because there's one that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. and two that just make no fucking sense at all. While, when um, Lumberg appears and informs Peter that he's made a mistake on his TPS report, he did not attach a cover sheet to his TPS report. I'm not entirely sure what a TPS report is supposed to be. I've heard it mentioned a few times. I don't know if it's something to do with time or something like that. But he didn't attach a cover sheet. 
So Lomberg comes over to admonish him in the way that only Lomberg can. And if he could add a TPS report to his cover sheet, or add a cover sheet to his TPS reports, that'd be great. And he asks him if he got the memo to tell him that. And Peter's trying to show him he has the memo, but Lumber just not, he's just barreling through, just barreling through, overriding him. And then another person, another manager comes along and says pretty much exactly the same thing. And so Peter's now got it from multiple different people. Inefficiency, up levels of bureaucracy. Too many middle managers. <laughs> too many middle managers in the inner tech. Far too many middle managers. Mm. Now, when he goes to this therapist, we're all circling back around to this. He goes to the therapist and the therapist tries something to relax Peter. Because Peter seems very, very anxious. He's very, I don't want to say like buttoned up, but you know, he's obviously very, very depressed. So he goes to the therapist and when the therapist basically puts him in like hypnotic state, mm-hmm. a much calmer, relaxed state, but as he's going to bring him out of that state, he has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> and so you have this surreal moment where you have a man who's having a heart attack, lying on the floor, dying. And this sort of like Hawaiian music comes in and Peter's just smiling, sort of looking at himself. And he then takes this sort of relaxed state forward for a significant portion. Like he starts getting a bit weirdly feeling more confident in himself and he goes to the restaurant and like he asks Joanna like out he asks her for lunch at the the, the, the chain restaurant next door to Chachki's <laughs> he said go and have a, a lunch at Chili's and he explains his job to her and like <laughs> he just sort of says I'm not going to go back to here I don't think I'm going to go anymore <laughs> he also starts like turning up late he starts wearing a more casual dress he basically starts to I don't want to say rebel I think it's more just that he doesn't care. Yeah, he he's stops like, caring. Rebellion feels more active yeah. than what he's doing. Yeah. He's just not thinking about it necessarily, yeah. I feel. It's just like, eh, I don't I don't care. He sums this up in this amazing scene where he speaks to the Bobs. So the two management consultants are brought in and they bring in they, they interview basically every employee and when they get to Peter, Peter comes in looking like he's just come back from like a golfing trip or something. He comes in, gets himself a drink, sits down, and then he casually explains. And he is the most brutally honest person out of everyone on the interview. There's no, like, covering anything up. He's completely honest. He tells them he only does 15 minutes of actual work a week. He tells them that all he's doing is just enough to get fired because there's no incentive to work any harder. Mm. He then mentions that he has eight different bosses, (laughs) which really pricks up the ears of the bobs because part of their thing as a manager, as management consultants, is to like find efficiencies. Yeah. So hearing that there are far too many middle managers really perks up their ears because he explains that if I've if I've got one, you know, Peter also explains that if you've got so many, if the whole, if you've got so many people who will jump on you for making a mistake, all you're doing is just try, like you're not doing anything to be better because there's no incentive to be better. The incentive is purely to not get moaned at or get fired. Yeah. Which is very funny. As like a, you know, oh, he's just trying to be, that's, oh, it, it works on the level of, oh, it's very funny, but also it's profoundly distressing. Mm. Because if you're at the top of, if you're trying to run a business, how is that a good thing when you've got employees who are actively working on in that way because of how your teams are being run? Yeah. How is that and helping it, anything? It doesn't help anything. And I think then, like, it comes back to, just to pan it from the movie, that idea of, like, meaningful work and that you know as human beings it's not that human beings 
don't want to work it's good for you to be working but it has to be like meaningful work to you to make you feel like it's not exactly this just doing enough to get by and not get fired yeah Peter's character is deliberately contrasted with Lawrence's neighbour Lawrence on paper has less than he he, on paper he's got less he you know technically earns less money he you know he works outside he works in construction so on paper it's sort of framed society frames it as like Peter is the better person yeah but in reality, Lawrence is far happier. He's far happier. Um, and the movie frames it that way. There's a scene where Michael, Peter and Samir are talking about... like guy, what Peter says, like a guidance counter at school says, what would you do if you had a million dollars? It's like a question designed to make you think about your dream job. Mm. And Peter answers that by saying, he just doesn't know. He's never known. Michael thinks that question is bullshit because, of, because he, he frames it as like, if people just do what they want, there wouldn't be any janitors, there wouldn't be any cleaners, there wouldn't be anything like that. Samir's answer is great because it's just like, I'll take half a million, put it in mutual funds, and I'll go <laughs> speak to my cousin, and he'd get like, get like a nice car and what have you. But Lawrence's answer is the best answer to this question. And it's an answer that is stuck with Diedrich Bader, and people will randomly shout this at him in the street. And he said that for quite some time, like if you Googled the phrase, if you Googled his answer, if you just Googled that, if you were searching for that as a category for example for uh, pornographic viewing you would get like his image <laughs> so his answer is two chicks at the same time <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> because he believes like he believes he'll be able to make that happen when he has that much money because chicks dig money Diedrich Bader is a gift truly truly he, he is well, I'm so glad that he got the part I love what he does with it. I love the mullet. I love Diedrich Bader in general. I think he's an incredible actor and I think he's massively underrated. He's not even his best role in a cult comedy. That's a Rex Quando and Napoleon Dynamite for anyone keeping yeah. score. That's very true. Iconic. Yeah. Iconic. All right, fuck it. Let's talk about Milton for a bit. Let's mm. talk about Milton. I've been putting it off. I know. Let's talk a bit more about Milton. So, Milton is both a character that you deeply sympathise with because he is... He has no self-esteem or confidence. No. He is just pushed, pushed, pushed around. There is no fucking backbone with this dude. Well, you say, well, I say that. He has a backbone, but it manifests itself in extreme acts of aggression and rage. Yeah. But not aggression and rage in the sense of he's going to beat the shit out of you. Aggression and rage it as in he's going to set the building on fire, which he threatens to... Throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. But he doesn't do it in an aggressive way. In fact, you actually you actively have to be listening because you can miss it. Yeah. It's deliberately like Stephen Root deliberately delivers the lines in a way that you could it is blinking, you'll miss it. Yeah. And what every time but like there are lines that he just says that just have me in tears of laughter. And the weird fucking lisp thing that he does <laughs> with the voice is just a master stroke in character work. Because if he just delivers it as himself or delivers it much more straight laced. Like, it would still work to a point. Yeah. But I don't... Like, there's also a visual thing. Like, the glasses that he wears... They're so huge. They're insane. They're so thick. Like, he had to wear... He was wearing contact lenses underneath it. And he had to, like... There's a scene where he tries to grab a stapler. He had to practice that because you can't... You can barely fucking see. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, God. It, it's sort of the same distance away that the microphone is from my... Like, my hand. Yeah. He couldn't fucking see that. Oh, wow. Okay. That, like those are not like shit that, but yeah his desk gets moved at least twice during the movie and at one point 
his desk gets moved into the storage closet in the basement. So he just literally gets moved away. And every time you see him, he's he's threatening to like burn the building down and set the building on fire. Mm. And he's also not being paid. Milton's life is just like suffering. Yeah. There is a scene. One. Of, this is one of the, me. My opinion. One of like the key key scenes of the movie, if you will. That it's another example of things just being so bollocks in this culture. So it's Bill Lumberg's forty-first birthday, and they're the employees are singing happy birthday and the way they're singing it it's like a funeral but for their like hopes and dreams yeah there is no enthusiasm there is no joy like my judge has actually said like he was he had to tell the extras like more than once like no energy just don't even like stop don't don't smile as much like you couldn't even just sit in like in the background do it no no he was like this has got to be the most like low energy thing ever and the way they sing it, I can't even approximate it. It's so fucking depressing. Yeah. It's hilarious, but my God, is it depressing. Like, they, don't, they can't even say his name. Yeah. They don't even say happy birthday, Bill, or happy birthday, dear. But, like, it's... Oh, it's just painful. And Lumberg... I don't even think Lumberg's enjoying it. No. No one's enjoying it. Well, Lumberg enjoys a lot of bullshit. He enjoys making people work weekends. Or more accurately, he does it because he he's just... Like, this is a power move. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about Lumberg, I promise. So they're, they're cutting this cake, and Milton's not even singing. He's just looking at that cake. Mm. Because this dude wants some fucking cake. Because he, as you hear, the last time there was this, he did not receive a piece. So he is... Determined to yeah, get his piece of cake. His fucking goal in life is to eat a piece of cake. That's all he wants. That is all he fucking wants. So he, a piece of cake had been cut, passed out. He's about to start eating a piece that he's holding. And then Nina from Accounts Payable tells him that, don't be greedy, got to pass it along. Everybody gets a piece. <laughs> and Milton's not happy about this. There's one point, I've never thought a scene of people just passing cake to each other could be played so stressfully. But there's a bit where he just says, the ratio of people do cake is too high. That breaks my soul. Because I just, I, 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 I'm just crying internally about how fucking funny that is. Because you can tell, he knows. He fucking knows he's not getting any cake. Again. <laughs> Again. And, like, he knows. He just wants. And it's not even, like... I, I don't even think this is, like, a great cake. This cake's not been, like, handmade or anything. I'm. It's very obvious to me that this is a cake that's been bought from, like, just a general store or what have yeah. you. So it's going to be perfectly nice. Like, it's not like it's going to be a shit cake. It's going to be perfectly edible. And these pieces that they're having are quite thick. It's not little true. slivers. No, they're, they're going thick on them. This is a proper thick queen of a cake. <laughs> but he's not going to get it. And he knows it. It's another way of showing that his self-esteem is through the floor. Because if he had any sort of self-esteem, he wouldn't let himself just get bullied by Nina. And no, that. he'd just take the cake and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take a piece, walk away. Take a piece, walk away. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And... <laughs> Things eventually get a bit... Um, I should say there's a fiery conclusion to this film. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away, but there's a fiery conclusion to this film. And you could argue that this scene is the catalyst for the conclusion. You could argue that. It's definitely a starting point. Yeah. It's just another indignity. Yeah. Like Milton's just there to show indignity and just pain. Mm. And also Lumberg takes his stapler. Quick fact about the stapler. So the company that makes the staplers, um, 
The staplers that they make were only ever made in black and like grey and what have you. Mm-hmm. The stapler that is in this film is red. The company then, based on the fact that this film became such a cult hit, they start making red staplers and now red staplers are like their biggest selling model by a distance. Because of the movie? Yes. Interesting. Because people like that red stapler. <laughs> I guess they do. It's, it's like, it's, because, you know, there's a scene where Lombok's telling me he's got to move the desk again and then Lombok sees the stapler, he goes up to it and this is a very, very key moment. He doesn't just like pick it up and walk off passive-aggressively. This is the one sort of naked, aggressive moment that Lumberg actually shows. Mm. His hand basically snaps onto it and pulls it away. It's the only time there's any sort of actual aggression like that he displays. The only time. Now, speaking of uh, Mr. Bill Lumberg, the way he's sort of framed walking around the office, he's like a fucking... He's almost like a spectre, like a almost like a spectral prison guard or something. He just looms. You never see him sit down for quite a long time in this film. You Every time you see him, he's just walking around holding that fucking mug. He is there just to walk around and just be a blight on people's existence. And there's a scene where Peter's trying to get away so that... Because he's convinced that Lombo's going to like demand that he comes in on Saturday to do extra work. And just as he's about to get away, he just... He's like he materialises out yeah. of thin air. Peter, like... He he's like he literally is like a fucking evil spectre. Yeah, it's like in a horror movie when you look yeah. left, you look right. Okay, I'm safe. Ah! And then he just appears. Yeah. Peter, I'm gonna need you to come in on Saturday. That'd be if you could be here for nine. That'd be great. You're getting great use out of that vocal fright today, aren't you? <laughs> and then he asks him to come in on Sunday as well, because they've let people go. Because they've done that thing where they let people go, and instead of hiring people to replace these people. They end up overworking people to pick up the slack. That's called efficiency, Louis. Yeah. Um, Familiar. And I don't have any of these workers complaining about their quote-unquote rights, okay? Yeah. I have a profit to make. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a scene during the film, I've got to talk about it when it comes to lumber. This scene is profoundly disturbing and yet one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's the Lumberg sex dream sequence. Mm. I don't need to relive that, Louis. I mean, clearly I'm going to. Yes, you do. I don't want to, though. (laughs) It's upsetting. It's fucking amazing. (laughs) So at one point, um, certain things happen, and then this leads to Peter having this horrifying nightmare of Lumberg having sexual congress with someone, and there's a point where he's (laughs) a little to the left. That would be great. It's fucking horrible. Like you don't. It's not graphic. No, but it's unsettling. He's like staring at you, the camera. It's very unsettling. And there's uh, it's interspersed with the uh, with the character of Drew, and he has about two lines in the film, but they're basically all about showing people his O face because he's the most obnoxious colleague. So he's making his weird orgasm faces, and he just and you got Lumberg doing his Lumberg sexual business. And it's so disturbing. I would like to um, re-repress that imagery, if that's okay. So if you could just never for the rest of our lives bring it up again. It's a bit where he looks at Peter. It's a bit where he looks straight on the camera. (laughs) I'd like to erase that from my memory bank. That's cool with you. I'm telling you, Lumberg is more disturbing than any horror movie villain. Well, that's because, yeah, I think we've all met people with at least some Lumberg-esque qualities, even if they're not the whole package, you know? Yeah. There's also, this film also contributed to the culture of print as a fucking bullshit. 
The printers are fucking bullshit. <laughs> there is a beautiful scene. After multiple scenes of frustration with printers where Peter, Michael and Samir take a printer and fucking mafia style execute it. Yeah. <laughs> which is a scene that I've seen parodied by so many random people on YouTube. I've seen it parodied by right wing anti Hillary Clinton types. I, like, I've seen it so one of them is dressed as Hillary Clinton and they're like murdering this printer. <laughs> anyway, you know, even Family Guy has done this scene, which is, I know it sounds ridiculous, but they have. Um, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. So they are just m- executing this printer and it's so cathartic. It's such a great moment because this print, because print is fucking infuriating. Yeah. that I mean, that is, like you say, that is office culture, isn't it? Being fucked off by the printer. <laughs> PC load letter, what does that mean? <laughs> you know we've all we've all been there we all printers are ridiculous things in a time where we're supposed to be going greener surely printers have had their day yeah i mean sometimes you do still need things fuck printers you paperless man fuck printers there's also during the scene like samir drops some breakdancing moves and they go back to peter's house <laughs> yes and that's inspired by the actor aj naidu he um, would actually go and like breakdance with friends like after filming oh nice so that wasn't a stunt guy, that's actually him. Nice. Yeah. I do like when it is actually the actors. That's fun. A little tidbit like that. I, I also want to quickly, quickly, because I, I, we've sort of hinted, but I want to quickly just go to Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston has like a B-plot to this movie. So her character works at Tchotchkes, this ridiculous TGI Friday's like chain restaurant. And really interesting fact about this. Now, you know the flair they talk about in the film yes. these like little badges and like basically They're nonsense ost- ostentatious decorations yeah. that you put on your clothes after this film came out sometime after it came out TGI Fridays actually got rid of their flair policy <laughs> because they didn't it was associated with like negative stuff because of this yeah so they got rid of it they got rid of flair or they got rid of their like minimum requirements I believe it was a bit of both okay so yeah. people could still choose to have flair, yeah. but they no longer needed to have flair. Yeah. And Joanna's just clearly like Joanna's just clearly it's a mirror it's a mirror image in a way, but also it's focusing on a different type of work. Yeah. It's focusing on the bullshit that is the American food service industry. Yeah, and being a server is really hard. Yeah. And it's re- I think it does demonstrate like the absolute shite <laughs> that yeah. you have to deal with as a server. Yeah. Especially in the American system, because obviously she's getting pulled up by uh, Mike Judge's character, not because she's broken any actual rules, Mm -hmm. but because because she's not like going ridiculously above and beyond. Yeah, she's not. She's do. She's not giving her hundred and ten percent. She's just giving a hundred percent. Giving what she's doing what she's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, she's perfectly competent, but she's just getting it in the neck because you know she's only doing quote the bare minimum. Which she politely points out that if the bare minimum, if you want me to wear more than fifteen pieces of flair, why not make the bare minimum like thirty-seven pieces of flair? Because <laughs> that's how many Brian's is Brian is wearing. It, you know, it's a very valid point. Yeah. And the scene where she quits her job is brilliant. Like Jennifer Aniston is viciously underrated as a performer. I really yeah. believe that, and she's brilliant in this. She's absolutely brilliant. She she really wanted to work with my judge. So that's partly that's one of the things why she's in the movie. And she kills it. Yeah. In all the scenes that are where she, it's centred on her, she kills it. Mm. And you but you completely believe her frustration. Like, you just wanted to get out of that particular environment because it's such bollocks. It's so un... It's unnecessary. It's, it's quite mean-spirited. Yeah. 
it's just quite funny because that environment, which is supposed to be like a, you know, where it's creating a good atmosphere for customers and it's creating a nice fun place to be, ironically seems even less fun than Inatech, the grey, unbelievably dull corporation. Mm. I suppose at Inatech though, like they're all kind of like doing the bare minimum of like the three lads we're, yeah, those we're following. Lads, yeah. But no one, people are calling them on like bureaucratic nonsense, but yeah. no one is being like, why aren't you going above and beyond? Yeah. So at least they can skate by depressing as that, that is yeah. to do. They can still do their 15 minutes of actual work a day and then yeah. just... Peter's barely trying. Like. Yeah, exactly. So I just want to... Because we've been going for a while. Okay. Um, I just want to talk... I didn't want to give too much of the plot away. Sure. Because it's not like there's time to... But, I, uh, but to me, if I gave it all away, it would defeat the point of like watching the movie if you've not yeah. seen it. Yeah. So I'm leaving. So I've, I'd like to think I've covered basically everything I want to cover with the actual body of the movie. So I'm going to leave it there. So a couple of facts and figures and a couple of little hypothesis, hypothetical questions to end on. So the film made about $10.8 million at the box office. Okay. So it roughly covered its production cost. Yeah. But, big but, it's not a hit. You can't really call it. It's no, not a hit. It Studio do not call even. it a hit. Yeah. But if the re- so you might be thinking, well, how did this become? Is you know what? How did you even become aware of this film? Mm-hmm. This film was, at least in America, absolutely spammed by Comedy Central for about two years. Oh really? Like they were just playing it a lot. They would play right? it at least once a month for about two years. Oh damn! <laughs> and every time it would be shown, more and more people would see it, and because people would come back to it. And people are like, oh my god, I've been like this film speaks to my experience. This film really relates to my experience. So does that make this the American equivalent of an ITV classic? <laughs> I mean, if you can't impart that, I mean, you can call it that if you wish. I just feel like it's it's much like what you describe when you do describe an ITV classic. Yeah. It's just always on, you yeah. know. Another way that this film became massive is it did insane numbers on DVD. Yeah. This film is done. I, the first time I saw it, a friend had it on DVD. Like, it was not a film that I would ever have heard of. Mm. They had it on DVD because word of mouth had spread through various, like, subcultures and culture magazines. Like, Dave Grohl said once that this is the favourite film of everyone who is in a touring band. Yeah. John C. McGinley talks about the marketing campaign, but we'll get to the marketing campaign in a minute, but there's a fucking hilarious quote that he came out with. This film... Basically, it tanked at cinemas. It just tanked, like it was basically it was a wide release. It was not like a like an indie release. This is a wide release mm. movie. This is a film released in the same way that like the Mummy would have been released, yeah. or Star Wars would have been released in the same sure. year, or the Matrix would have been released. This is not like a little indie darling where it's only on at like ten screens, yeah. and every sc- every screening's got a Q and A from the director and the producer, and you know, like the only people who see it are like film buffs and like other producers mm, yeah it's not one of those they they were like there was a focus group that they were screening it for they were screening it for quite a few focus groups and all the focus groups that's the thing the focus groups all really liked it it's not like the film wasn't testing well with focus groups or anything it's like everyone who does see this film it appeared really liked the movie the issue is quite simply how do you market this kind of film because it's not a screwball comedy. It's not a tradition. It's not a typical comedy. It's not got one character having to deal 
and find a way to solve a problem caused by another character and then there's a wacky load of bullshit and mm. then it ends with a fun simple resolution Mike Judge hated what a marketing campaign did to the film John C. McGinley put it thusly it fucking tanked <laughs> it was a dog with fleas nobody fucking went it was two weeks and out I was like I'll be goddamned. you motherfuckers you were on the five yard line five yard line you couldn't put it in and I couldn't fucking believe it Whoever the marketing geniuses were at the studio, they fumbled on the two man. That's got some. If you don't, if you don't know what, basically, five yards American football, yeah, yeah. five yards in the touchdown line. They fumbled on two two yard line. Yeah. So they're like, they're they so had close. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had all of the things they needed, and they fucked it. Yeah. Because Johnson McGinley is a huge believer. He loved his work on the film. He's fucking brilliant in it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he even was suggesting like for his costume. I completely forgot to mention this. He wanted like the costume to be like a tiny bit too small. He wanted to sort of be like he. Oh, there's a quote here. That was it. I wanted my shirt to be a size too small because those guys always wear a wardrobe that's a size too small. Like maybe they were athletes and now they're fat fucks and they're still wearing fucking ties from high school. I wanted that. I wanted those braided leather suspenders, which just makes me sick. And I wanted the fucking glasses. I gave uh, the costume team that input a week before, and I go down to the fitting Monday night to work on Tuesday morning. And everything they did, they just crushed it. You don't have to open your mouth and illustrate and demonstrate as much when the wardrobe and the props speak for you. Yeah. Because his costume, it, like, what he looks like, he does like an absolute like dickhead. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's brilliant. But yeah, John C. McGinley just coming out with all the quotes when they talk about these movies. Mike Judge actually said that the poster was almost implying that like, because, so the poster for this film, there's like two. The original sort of one that you would see, like, if you were walking past it, walking at a cinema, you would see a poster of just some guy covered in post-it notes. Mm. And a tagline was like, work sucks. Office space from the creator of Beavers and Butthead, King of the Hill. Some guy covered in post-it notes. Post-it notes are like not even a thing in this movie. No. They're never mentioned. They, uh, what the fuck has that got to do with anything? Like, because I showed, yeah. I deliberately Show showed you it. You showed me both versions, yeah. And did it even attempt to sell the movie? No, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. <laughs> now, I know a lot of the producers involved in this, they would all acknowledge that this movie is a hard sell. Yeah. And it is. It's a really hard sell. Yeah, I agree. I think it is a hard... Because it's not a straight-ahead kind of thing. But they could have done so much better. Yeah. They really could have done so much better. How do you market a film about the crushing pointlessness of this working culture? How, how do you do that? Like, because it's not these are all these characters are relatable and believable. Mm. These aren't really exaggerated characters. No, like the most exaggerated thing that happens, really character, most exaggerated character trait is a person saying that'd be great. Yeah, that that's about as OTT as it gets. Yeah. I think Milton, Milton is can can be cartoonish at times, but that might be part of more I've the met, look than no, anything no, no. else. I've met more people like Milton than I've met like Lumberg. Oh really? Yeah. In the, oh okay. Like like non-existent self-esteem like Milton is a little bit more I'm not I've met more Milton's than I've met Lumbergs that, that's interesting I'm, I've uh, taken a quote from uh, legendary film writer and critic Roger Ebert who did give us film a thumbs up um, Office Space is a comic cry of rage against the nightmare of modern office life it has many of the same complaints as Dilbert and the movie Clock Watchers and for that matter the works of Kafka and the Book of Job <laughs> It is about work that crushes the spirit. Oh, God. Office cubicles are cells, supervisors are the wardens, and modern management theory is skewed to employ as many managers and as few workers as possible. (laughs) 
I imagine a lot of people listening can relate to at least some of that in their real lives. Yeah. I imagine a lot of you can. You've either been in that situation, are in that situation, have been near that situation, or, you know, friends in that situation. I just thought I'd throw in a, throw in a uh, learned critic. Yeah. But um, I just want to quickly end on... Uh, I just want to ask, could you ever see a world where this film becomes, like, a major hit? Um, I don't... Or have become a major hit? I don't know. Um... Because on paper... To me, the marketing, I'm surprised that they weren't pushing Jennifer Aniston a lot more. Yeah, she's not very present in the marketing. Or at least on that poster, she's not present. I, I do know in some of the trailers, she's a bit more yeah. pushed forward. But what, like, the fact that the poster does not have its most prominent star on it is fucking be- is bewildering yeah. to me. I mean, like, the... The part of me that thinks it might not is is that same part of me that is like because there is a very grounded darkness to it. Like there is, yeah. um, I don't think the whole movie is pessimistic, but there are certain uh, there are portions of it that you there is kind of like you say that kind of crushing um, humdrumness. Yeah, and be- and it's not as easy to explain as something like a screwball comedy. Yeah. I think that's where. That's why I think it has more of that cult classic status where when people who've seen it really love it, but yeah. getting people over the line yeah. to see it might be the issue. Like, I don't think they're similar movies necessarily, but like, it's a similar thing to, you know, Napoleon Dynamite is yeah. also very marmite in that sense. Yeah. Like, people who love it really love it. But what actually, how do you explain Napoleon Dynamite? Napoleon Dynamite to me is much harder to explain than Office Space. That's true. I much agree with harder. you on that. I do agree with you on that. Um, but, it, you know, I think there are similar in terms of how do you market it, yeah. even though they're different tones and they're trying to achieve different things. Mm. Um, you, you do run into that because they're neither of them are straight ahead in what yeah. they're doing, you know. So um, I think this is much darker than Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, how, how to kind of get that across yeah. is much more of a challenge. Yeah. Um, like, I haven't seen all of Mike Judge's work. I'm very aware of all of it, but I haven't, like, you know, gone deep on, say, like... I haven't seen all of Beavis and Butthead. I've yeah. seen bits. Um, but I, I... That's very different. It is, but to me, this is one of the more challenging things in, like, his main yeah. pieces to to put forward. Like, Silicon Valley is quite easy to market, I think, comparatively. So, I don't think you get it across in the same way as watching it, but you can kind of explain it a lot easier. Yeah. It's like Silicon Valley, there are people to root for. Yeah. I mean, you do root for people in this, but there's like Silicon Valley to me is a much more obvious villain. Yes. All characters are much more obviously villainous. Like, Lumberg is the villain, but he's not like... He's not a billionaire that you're like, ah, he's clearly the bad guy and he's screwing over he's an these impediment. guys. He's an, he is an impediment. Yes. He's not like... He's not actively gunning for the individual. No. He's not actively gunning for Peter Gibbons. But he is an impediment to Peter Gibbons' life. Yeah. Compared yeah. to something like Silicon Valley where you're yeah. like, oh, no, they are Whereas, actually targeting yeah. Gavin them. Gavin Belson is the actual villain. He actually wants them to fail and yeah. he's targeting for them for that purpose. Yeah. Um, I suppose for you, where where does this fall for you and like your own kind of these are my favourite things in the Mike Judge canon? Oh, that means I literally have to judge the judge. Yeah. Oh, fucking hell. Um, of his feature... I can do this of his feature films. Okay. Of his live-action feature films. Because this is the first time he directed anything live-action. Yeah. Because everything he'd done before this... Animation. It's all animated. Uh, this is my favourite one. 
Yeah, um, I think I prefer this to Idiocracy as well, yeah. which is the other one I've seen. Yeah. The other comparison that people will make, or do make, when it comes to this, is, of course, Ricky Gervais's The Office. Mm. This came first, I assume, yes. yeah? Yeah. Not by much. Like, it was still quite... It was. It would really start to develop its cult following when The Office yeah. landed. Um, I'm not here to come up with a full-on, like, which one is better, which one is more accurate, because they're two very different things. And they're also based in different countries, which I yes. do think has an influence on it as well. Yeah. Um, Mike Judge was actually offered the chance to work on the American version of The Office. Ah. But one of, like, there was, like, a that was like a press pack or something and people handing information and one thing's actually was the quote um the office succeeds where movies like office space failed oh (laughs) well he found it very funny like he declined to work on it i mean yeah at that point i i prefer office space to the american office which but I, I don't think they're doing the same they're thing. They're not doing the same thing. But if I had no. to pick, I would pick Office Space. But I think that's because I have that kind of darker comic sensibility. Well, the American Office, like. to my knowledge, is not really about... It's not really trying to say much about the culture. It's a character comedy. It's about the it characters. Is. I think they might, at this, in the first season, try and do more of something like the British Office. But then they were like, oh, no, this isn't landing right. But again, the British yeah. Office isn't much about the characters. It, there's only really, like, one character in the British Office who's actively, like... Not well. There's only there's two characters that are actively like not happy with their lives. Really, yeah. in like you know, David Brent fucking loves it. Yeah, like but he's he's the part of the problem. Yeah, <laughs> David Brent fucking <laughs> loves it. He loves Gary his middle management loves job. It. Yeah, you know, in Office Space, the vast majority of the characters fucking hate it. Yeah, you know, there's a character in it who tries to take their own life. Mm. Like it's it does get very like office space genuinely gets very dark yeah but even the most dark scene in the film is the way it's portrayed it's still it's still darkly funny rather than just like actually yeah it's 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 funny throughout like i do think it it it, it's still definitely a comedy yeah you know what i mean but it's the blackest comedy it is but it's interesting i'm just as i'm thinking out loud now because there are a few kind of i would say modern day sort of comedies that maybe you and i don't necessarily like in the same way or, or on the same page about yeah. and usually it's because like well is this even a comedy is yeah. often the question that comes up and I'll be like yeah it's a comedy you know it's just yeah. also a drama and you're like but what's it what's it really trying to do yeah. and this is very clearly a comedy throughout yeah. even though it has these dark spots you can't yeah. really mistake it for a yeah. drama at any point you're satirising the office life the tone is consistent yeah which is kind of what we talk about when we talk about well what's this thing trying to do and, yeah. and it's like is the tone all over the place and yeah doesn't matter kind of thing yeah and you know what with that we will leave this office we will lock the doors we'll go home for the weekend and we'll come back next week all refreshed speaking of coming back next week uh what would you like to do next time so uh i'm gonna try and experiment with the form again but what i'm gonna do is i'm going to bring you a little smorgasbord of uh fun things from irish language and literature to um to you know bring you into my culture louis (laughs) Um, a cultural exchange a cultural exchange so i haven't quite decided what little you know nuggets of wonder i'm going to show you yet but it's going to be in that world so we'll all look forward to what what i come up with (laughs) all right if you could do the research for that and prepare something wonderful for it that'd be great maybe i'll never do an episode again now because of that what about that louis that wouldn't be great 
exactly. So I'll never use that depth lumber vocal fry depth again, or I'll I'll walk right out of this podcast. I'm gonna need you to do more research. Never. <laughs> I'm gonna do it completely off the cuff now. All right, screaming Irish language. At you. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. You were listening to the Darling Why podcast presented by Louis Tangaridis and Kate Stewart. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to give us a follow at Darling Why podcast on Instagram. Feel free to rate and subscribe on whatever podcast feed you're listening to. This podcast is produced, edited and put together entirely by Louis Tangaridis and Kate Stewart. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>